You're listening to the St. Mark's Podcast for October 9th, 2022, the 18th Sunday after Pentecost. Today's sermon was given by the Reverend Dr. Justin Crisp. It's based on Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. So yesterday, I discovered a way I could make myself even more tired than I already am. I discovered the be better hashtag on Twitter. So those of you who are on Twitter, know a thing or two about Twitter, know that you can tag your post with a hashtag, so-called, because you put the hash in front of it and then you you say whatever it is your post is about. And this allows people to sort tweets by these hashtags. So I found the Be Better hashtag on Twitter and proceeded to read all of um, the things people have said about Be Better, all the things people have said with Be Better at the end of it. Now, the posts tagged be better. Um, I'll just say it's a, it's, a, it's a wide mix. Some of them are encouraging. Okay, some of them are encouraging. It's not all bad news. Some of them are encouraging, uh, like um, encouraging people to try on a new fitness routine. Hashtag be better. Okay, but there are also some complaining, like uh, the guy who was upset that the line at Chipotle was too long. Hashtag be better. There were some political ones, like, um, you know what, actually, I'm going to let you just imagine those, but they're just as bad as you think they might be. Hashtag be better. And there are also a lot of them which are giving people advice, right? Like the Canadian police department trying to dissuade people from speeding. Hashtag be better. Or the guy saying we should focus on people's strengths rather than their weaknesses because character counts. Hashtag be better. Okay, it's, it's a lot. It's a pretty wide range, and it's a lot. This moral scolding on Twitter. But it's a little microcosm of our culture, I think. We live in what we like to think, some of us like to think, some of us bemoan, is one of the most permissive cultures on planet Earth in our history. We celebrate a nearly infinite range of choices. You do you, and all of that, right? But at the same time, we relish judging each other for those choices. Judging each other for those choices according to whatever law our little in-group happens to follow. Whether this law is the law of political correctness, or own the libs, short for own the liberals. Or if it's I boycott Elon Musk, or I think Tesla is going to save the world. Or paleo, or keto, or diet culture is fat shaming as such. Okay, everybody has a law they're trying to follow. And if you've been to a cocktail party recently, you know how stressful it is trying to guess which law it is this stranger obeys so that you don't rile them up too much in the middle of what's supposed to be a happy gathering. It's exhausting. Okay, it's exhausting. Tiptoeing around each other all the time, isn't it? I submit that American culture is no less puritanical than we have ever been. Perhaps we're even more puritanical than the Puritans were. If C.S. Lewis is to be believed that the real live Puritans were the people who you would go and have a pint with down at the pub after work. 
It's good news for the Congregationalists down the street because they're actually the successors of the Puritans. The Puritans themselves seem to be pretty fun-loving. Um, perhaps we're even more puritanical than they were. We're certainly no less puritanical than we were in the 18th century or the 19th century. We just happen to have more laws we try to obey. And perhaps we share less of a common sense about what this law ought to be. We're still judgmental. Just judgmental according to a plurality of laws. How we got ourselves into this mess, hashtag be better and everything that it represents, is less interesting to me than the fact that Christianity ought to be an outright offense to it. Really ought to be. Christianity, to my mind, is the end of all moralizing. Because there's something nearly, or perhaps just outright immoral at its core. You might be thinking, oh my gosh, what do you mean? There's something immoral at the core of Christian faith? Well, yeah. God's justification of the ungodly rather than God's justification of people who are good. St. Paul puts it in his letter to the Romans that God showed his love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the immoral scandal at the heart of the Christian religion. That God did not wait on us, or anyone else for that matter, not even the people who post hashtag be better on Twitter, didn't wait for any of us to hashtag be better before saving us. Giving us the promise of abundant life here and now, and of eternal life in his presence hereafter. Now, it's been a perennial temptation of Christians to construe our religion in the opposite way, to make our religion into a set of moral demands reported to us by a very wise teacher of ancient Christian thought. As the late Bishop Stephen Bain once quipped, a deceased clergyman named Christ, someone who gave very good advice in his sermons and who died because he was a really nice guy in a very mean world, and he died so that we would all be nice people too. The reality of Christian faith is altogether more offensive, both to modern metaphysics and to modern moral sensibilities than that. The second letter to Timothy, from which our second lesson this morning was taken, read so beautifully, 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 beautifully by Thea Rucci from our um, Meet in the Middle middle school group. Thank you, Thea. The second letter to Timothy is ascribed to St. Paul, probably not written by St. Paul himself. It's probably later, probably written after Paul's death by someone who is in Paul's orbit and trying to take up Paul's mantle. The second Timothy self-consciously develops some of the themes from Paul's authentic letters, letters like Romans, from which I quoted a moment ago. And chief among these themes 2 Timothy is developing is the idea of Paul's that we are not justified or saved by our works, as he puts it. We're not saved by our works, by our moral do-gooding. God saved us, 2 Timothy says, in the chapter immediately preceding the one from which Thea read. God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. 
given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. In other words, God freely deigned to save us in Jesus, not because we hashtag did better or because we might do better in the future and God could just foreknow it. God could tell we would be better in the future. God just saved us because God wanted to, according to his own purpose, as 2 Timothy puts it, according to his own purpose. While we were still sinners, as St. Paul said in Romans, or in fact, according to 2 Timothy, before time even began, before the ages began, before you even existed, before you had even conceived or imagined the worst thing you were going to do in your life, God decided to save you. Now, Christians have argued for a very long time about whether this means anything goes morally, right? Does this mean we can just do whatever we want to? From one vantage point, I have to say, it is, in fact, anything goes. It's anything goes in the sense that no matter how horrible or heinous it might be, there is nothing whatsoever that we can do to cancel out or nullify the fact that we and God are good. We might not be good, right? But we and God are good. And there is nothing we can do, nothing at all, to make that statement untrue. All our sins and their awful world-ending, God-eclipsing consequences have been canceled out by Jesus, whom, St. Paul says again in Romans, God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood. That sacrifice of atonement, which covers the sins of the whole world, that's what's both metaphysically mind-boggling to modern people. It makes no sense to us, and it's also morally offensive to us given our predilection for judging one another. God put forward Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood. This is what's deeply amoral, perhaps even immoral, about Christianity. That so far as God's work in Christ is concerned, Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler are on the same playing field. Both of them are the same kind of people, Forgiven sinners. Both words are true. Forgiven sinners. And they're forgiven sinners because, to quote the late Robert Ferrer Capon, God, for his own idiot reasons, decided to absolve the world. That's it. God, for his own idiot reasons, decided to absolve the world. So now Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler, same playing field. If you suspect this means Christianity cuts the legs out from under one of our most well-worn ways of motivating moral behavior, the fear of punishment or the hope of reward, you'd be right. It does. It does. It's the end of trying to motivate people to be good because they're afraid they're going to be punished or they hope they're going to be rewarded for it. It's over. It's out. It's done. Heaven is promised forgiven sinners who accept that God has forgiven them in Christ, who rejoice like the Samaritan leper rejoices over his healing. 
in the gospel lesson read by Father Peter a moment ago, who know and accept that they have been forgiven and relish it. And hell is the state of forgiven sinners who refuse to accept that they've been forgiven. They have been forgiven, they just refuse to accept it. They insist on living as though this were not so, that God is not real and that, they're, that God has not done everything that's necessary to make them and God okay. And perhaps they do this eternally. At least that possibility is laid out for us by Christian faith. Perhaps you could do this, you could insist on this eternally. You could do it eternally in spite of the fact that God is pounding on the door you are desperately trying to hold closed. As C.S. Lewis said, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. And God, I think, is pounding on the outside, trying to get them to let him in. I think, too, that that door is vibrating with the music of a party which is taking place just on the other side of it. A party at which there is no pretense, no self-scrutiny, no self-defense, no tiptoeing, because everybody has given up the business of weighing each other's scales, even weighing their own scales because they are so caught up in the fact that the Lord has just poured them the best glass of wine they've ever had in their whole life. And he's just gone down into the cellar to get what he says is going to be even better. That's the kind of party. And they're so caught up in the joy of being with one another. They don't care about whatever has happened before. Now, Scripture says that it's God's own desire that everyone would come to that party, that it is the will of God that all would be saved. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, from the first letter perhaps written by this anonymous author who's saying that he's Paul. It's God's will that everyone would come to the party, and it's incumbent upon us as Christians, I think, to hope and to pray that the denizens of hell do not keep that door shut forever. Because what a total shame that would be. It would be a total shame. Because whoever is in hell and whoever's in heaven, they're the same kind of people. Forgiven ones. From another vantage point, of course, Christianity is not anything goes morally, right? There's a lot of talk in Christian faith and in our own Anglican tradition about good works. But if you notice, anytime you hear this language in the liturgy, grace always comes before it. There's never good works without grace, and grace always comes before. You notice that in the collect, which Reverend Elizabeth prayed at the beginning of the service, we ask God to grant that God's grace would precede and follow us, that we might be continually given over to good works. God's grace always comes before, because you are freed of the expectation of reward or punishment by this grace. You're freed just to be good because being good is good and it's good to you and it's good to others. In fact, you can do good now without any self-interest at all. You can love your neighbor just because your neighbor is lovely. 
You can love your neighbor just for your neighbor's own sake. Not because by loving your neighbor you're going to be rewarded with heaven. Or because if you don't love your neighbor, you're going to be punished with hell. You're freed from all of that. Because you and God are already good. Which frees you actually to do good for its own sake. Doing good always grows out of the knowledge that God has already forgiven you your shortcomings. That's part of what it means to pray that God's grace would always precede and follow us, that we may be given to good works. We know that we're already forgiven, and we're already forgiven even for stuff we're going to do six years from now that we've not even thought about. We're already forgiven for all of that too, unequivocally and without condition, just because God loves us, and loved us even before the foundation of the world. Doing good or being good isn't the precondition of anything whatsoever so far as God is concerned, period. God is rather like the bishop in the beginning of Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, who forgives the man Jean Valjean who has stolen his silver. The police bring Valjean back to the bishop with the silver in tow to accuse him, to say, this guy stole your silver. And the bishop, without any prompting from Jean Valjean, says to the police that he gave Jean Valjean the silver. It was a gift. Then he proceeds to hand him even more, even more, gives him two silver candlesticks before Jean Valjean goes out the door. The bishop forgives Jean Valjean without his even asking for it. He overlooks his wrongdoing, and he turns even his wrongdoing into a gift. And those of you who know Les Mis, the novel or the musical, know that this act of love changes Jean Valjean's life forever. That is the Christian universe. That's it. That's it in one story. That is the Christian universe. And it is contained whole and entire in the two couplets at the end of the ancient Christian hymn quoted by the author of Second Timothy in our lesson this morning. That series of couplets which follow this saying is sure in the lesson from Second Timothy is what scholars believe was an ancient Christian hymn. The author of Second Timothy is not inventing it themselves. They're quoting this hymn. In the last two couplets of the hymn, you get the gravity of the threat of the moral law. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And that's an echo of Matthew 10.33, where Jesus says as much. Jesus says, if you deny me before others, I will deny you before my Father in heaven, in Matthew chapter 10. But that couplet is immediately canceled out relieved. It's popped like a balloon. It's exploded into beauty like fireworks by the very next one, by the very next line. If we are faithless, he is faithful. For he cannot deny himself. It's as though the hymn writer, having written, if we deny him, he will also deny us, is forced to say, then again, he cannot deny himself. 
This is God's nature, this then again. That in the words of the prayer of humble access, which comes before the reception of communion in the first English book of common prayer in which we still read before receiving communion at services of right one, like at eight o'clock here at St. Mark's, that it is God's own property. It's one of the divine attributes. It is his property always to have mercy. Always, always to have mercy. This is God's nature. This then again, he cannot deny himself. Just as when Jesus threatens to disown those who disown him, it's true, but then welcomes St. Peter in love after St. Peter has literally denied him three times on the night that Jesus died. Because no matter what Peter has done, Jesus can't deny himself. It's as though our God just can't help himself. And it changes everything. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can find more sermons on our website, www.stmarksnewcanon.org.